If you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 6. The text we'll be looking at this morning is Isaiah 6, 1 through 10. Isaiah 6, 1 through 10. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would um, give us a vision of your holiness as we study your scripture today, that we would not be bound by just academics of words on a paper, but we would, but we would be also drawn to the person that you are the person of Jesus Christ, the person of the Heavenly Father, and the person of the Holy Spirit, that we would understand who you are as God and that we would um, desire to know you more and that we would desire to give you glory and honor. Father, help me that I would preach words that are true, that would glorify you. Open our eyes and our ears to the truths of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have a group of guys, and some of you are in the room this morning, who get together for um, a Bible study on, on, uh, on Saturday mornings. And we've been reading or working through the book, Knowing the Living God, which is by Paul Washer. And uh, this is a study about the attributes of God. Um, an attribute is kind of a big word that says what, what it really means is an attribute of God is a way of expressing something that we can know about the character of God. So, um, for example, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology lists more than 40 attributes of God. 
Um, here are some of the ones that the guys have been studying on Saturday mornings. We've talked about God's perfection, how God is perfect. We've talked about God's eternal nature. We've talked about God's self-existence. In other words, God doesn't need anybody to... He wasn't created. You know, He was. God always was, always is. Um, God's self-sufficiency is another attribute. He doesn't need anything outside of Himself. He has the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need us for His, for, uh, for company. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need our, our, our adorations. God is fully sufficient in Himself. Um, another attribute of God is His immutability. That's just a fancy word for He's unchanging. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His omnipotence. This is one we're probably familiar with. God is all-powerful. His omnipresence is God is fully present everywhere. God is fully present right here in this room. He's fully present at the depths of the ocean. He's fully present in the center of the earth, on the moon. He's fully present on the farthest star that the Hubble Space Telescope can see and everywhere in between. God is fully present. Not just part of God is here, but God is fully present everywhere. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. So studying these attributes is a way to learn about the character of our God to get to know who He is. So why is it important to know about God, to, know, to learn more about Him? We've been studying the Reformers in Sunday school, and um, one of the things that the Reformers taught that there are three aspects of a saving faith. The first one is knowledge. And that is just like a book knowledge. I know about God. I know what he, what he's teaching. I know these different characteristics of God. Okay. Is that a saving faith, knowing about God? Well, there are a lot of people who have read the Bible, who have never put their faith in Christ, and who have no faith. So just a knowledge of God in and of itself isn't enough to save a person. The second aspect that the reformers taught was assent or agreement. The second thing is not just knowing about God, knowing who He is, knowing what the Bible says, but it's also agreeing with what the Bible teaches, what the Gospel teaches about God. Okay, The second step. Now, here again, this is not a perfect faith either, because what happens? The devil and his demons know all about God. They believe in God. Are they saved? No, because they've rejected God. Okay, So just a knowledge of God and just a uh, an agreement with what I, what he teaches is true doesn't mean you're going to be saved. The third aspect that the Reformers taught about was trust. So knowledge of God's Word, assent or agreement with God's Word, and then trust in God. And so this was the saving faith because they took the knowledge, the agreement, and then trust in God. And that was what formed the full knowledge of God for them for their saving faith, their great, the, the saving faith. So, and as we read these, some of these verses in Scripture, we're going to see some of these that really combine these aspects into one, maybe one word of know or knowledge, but it really is these three aspects together. I, I want to, to demonstrate the necessity of knowing about God, here's one verse uh, from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. So here, 
All these deeds that we can do are worth nothing. What is important is that we understand and know the Lord. In John 17.3, Jesus, at the end of His earthly ministry, praying for His disciples, praying for all believers, praying for us, He says in John 17.3, and this is eternal life. And what is eternal life? And this is eternal life. Jesus' words here, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what are the benefits of knowing God? Well, we have in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So we have the benefit of wisdom and insight. What In Psalm 9, 10, we read, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So here we see trust or faith being equated here in, in this as a benefit of knowing God. The benefit of uh, that described in Daniel chapter 11, people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So if we know God, we'll stand firm and take action. This is a benefit of spiritual strength. And one that we're probably very familiar with in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Here we have the benefit of perseverance and confidence. But there's also a negative side. The dangers of not knowing God. So we have the positive and we have the negative. Um, In Psalm 50, verse 21, we read, These things you have done. This is God speaking. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. So here we see, you thought I was one like yourself. In other words, we're making God in our own image. Okay, Making God in our own image is, is a, a danger. That's not really who God is. God is the God who is revealed in Scripture. So we need to know that. In John 4.22, Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman, he says, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The danger of false worship. So we can fall into false worship by not knowing God. Um, another danger is danger to, of indifference to sin. We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. If we don't know God, we don't even know what sin is. We become indifferent to it. Okay. The danger of unbelief, and this is one that really a lot of it falls on our shoulders here. Romans ten fourteen, another familiar text. How then will they call on Him on whom in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? In other words, without knowledge without knowing about God, without knowing the gospel, there's no salvation. And that is something, that's where the responsibility of us as the church is to send forth and preach the gospel. The danger of divine judgment and destruction. In Hosea chapter 4, 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. So here again, God will reject those who have no knowledge of him. And here again, that is, I think that takes the, the uh, knowledge in terms of a saving faith knowledge. Okay, the, one, the attribute that we really want to look at today is the holiness of God. 
And um, I don't want this to become an academic study. It might be because I, I preach with lots of Scripture because Scripture tells it better than I can tell it. But I don't want this to be an academic knowledge. I really want you to have an understanding of the holiness of God and the majesty and the greatness of God and just how amazing God is. If we look at the words here, um, the word holy comes from the Hebrew, a Hebrew word that means separated, marked off, placed apart, or withdrawn from common use. So, so God is separate. Holy is being separate. It's, it's set aside. It is reserved for something special. Okay. That's what the, what the Hebrew definition of the word means. So when, when we describe the holiness of, holiness of God, we really mean two different things. We're going to use another word, transcendent. And transcendent is, um, to go beyond, to rise above, or to exceed. So something that's transcendent is above, beyond anything that we know. Okay. So God is transcendent above his creation. In other words, he's above all of us. He is, he created us. He's not like us in that, that we're created beings. This world is created. He is above and outside of creation. The second thing is God is transcendent above his creation's corruption. Okay. So he's separate from our sin. God must be separate from our sin. And so this is going to come in to play as we read our scripture today about how separate we, he is from our sin. So the sermon title is Holy, Holy. The first holy is spelled differently. And I, and I don't know, you either think this is clever or you think it's stupid. I'm not sure what it is. If it's clever, it's good at God's idea. If it's stupid, it was my idea. But holy, the first holy is W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy or whole or complete. And the definition that my computer gave me was holy is completely and entirely, or the second definition was solely and exclusively. And you know, those are words that really describe God's holiness. He is completely and entirely, and he is solely and exclusively. That is what God is. I mean, he is exclusive in his ways because he is holy. So when I say he is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, Holy, I mean he is completely holy. He is entirely holy. He is solely holy. He's the only one. He is exclusively holy. That's who God is. He have, we, the, God is holy, holy, holy. And, and, um, God alone is holy. He's separate. He is transcendent. He is unapproachable by sinful creatures. Okay? We cannot approach the holy God because we are sinful creatures. So, that was all the introduction. Well, the scripture will go faster, I think, okay? Um, the first point, on the, the, the second point, I'm not sure what it is, looking upward. So Isaiah wrote this scripture. This, is the, this was his encounter with God. Um, um, which, as we look in other parts, in, in, in Second Chronicles talks a little bit about Isaiah. Um, he's been identified as an aristocrat and a member of the royal court. In, in 2 Chronicles 26, 22, we read and that uh, now the rest of the acts of King Uzziah, from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. So in other words, he recorded, he didn't, it's not recorded in Chronicles, but at one point he's, it, is, it is recorded there that he did ta- uh, write an account of the reign of King Uzziah so in other words, King or Isaiah was very well acquainted with, with King Uzziah. So that makes 
that's a special thing to know because it makes what happens in the first verse of chapter 6 all the more important. So we read Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, so that was probably about 740 B.C. Um, King Uzziah had been ruling in Israel for 52 years. Second Chronicles 26.4 says about King Uzziah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So he was one of the good kings of Israel, of Judah. Israel, Judah had been experiencing a period of peace and prosperity. King Uzziah ended his reign, however, by falling into the sin of pride. He entered the temple to burn incense to the Lord, something that's reserved only for the priests. He was immediately struck with leprosy, and it was from this that he likely died. So the kings that followed Uzziah were ineffective. They were not as strong. Um, they were just as, as Uzziah had been. So basically the death of Uzziah, the king, was a time of crisis for Israel. And so in that crisis that's going on in the, in the, in the nation of Judah, actually, is, is also a crisis for Isaiah. The king was gone. And so when you read, the, if we come back to verse um, 6, verse 1, it really, with that in mind, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So here what, what Isaiah is describing is a, is a visible manifestation of God. And you know, if you'll note, there's no um, mention of the actual appearance of God himself. Um, you know, scripture tells us we can't actually see the face of God and live. But I, you know, believe he did see God, but probably not the face of God. We don't understand it completely. Even though King Uzziah died, what is, what is, what is Isaiah seeing? He's seeing that the Lord, the King of the universe, still rules. He still rules heaven. He still rules earth from his throne high and lifted up. So he can have confidence that the King is still there. Okay? The train of his robe fills the temple. You know, and, and, and I, this is kind of interesting. I didn't realize it says this, but, but the, 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 the original Hebrew word, when it talks about the train of his robe, is not the whole big robe like I thought. It's just the edge of his robe, the fringe, the trim on the edge. And so if you consider that, that just the edge of his robe, just the trim of it, filled the temple. It wasn't his whole robe, the immensity of God. And then, of course, we come to the seraphim in, in verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. So the seraphim are fiery, angelic beings. Okay, They're created by God. With, they have six wings, of course. With two wings, it says that they flew. With two wings, they covered their faces so that they did not gaze at God's glory. With two wings, they covered their feet in submission to God. And so when you think about that, with two wings, they're serving God. And with four of their wings, they're actually worshiping God, worshiping by covering themselves, okay? In Isaiah 6.3, it talks about what the, the, the seraphim does. And they were, and here in verse 3, and they called out to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this holy, holy, holy is a threefold repetition, and it's used to give emphasis to what is being said. So God is absolutely and infinitely holy. No other attribute of God is given greater emphasis than God's holiness. Um, all other attributes really flow out of His holiness. 
I mean, for example, you don't hear any, read any place in the Bible where it says that God is merciful, 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 or that he's love, love, love. The only one you read about is you read about God's holy, holy, holy. And that is because that is the overarching, the defining thing about God that really all of his other attributes come from. One of the other, um, we, we, talk, we talk about um, the, 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 the experience of Jesus, or, of, of, uh, of Isaiah's experience in the, viewing the, the God of the, of the Bible in the temple, high and lifted up. Um, we see in Revelation a similar account. And this is from Revelation chapter 4. And um, it talks about... Um, that he saw one who John had this experience. He saw one who sat there who had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with white, with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peelings of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was that were a sea of glass like crystal and then it talks about the seraphim the four living creatures in this point it caused them with each with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come and how amazing this is. And there's another account later in Revelation of, of, of the Lamb. And, and here again, the majesty and the holiness of God. So in, in, this, in, in Isaiah refers to, back in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, we refer, he refers to the Lord of hosts. So the same God is the Lord of hosts. And what the Lord of hosts really is, it's a military term. It is a term that, that is the commander-in-chief over all creation of all the Lord of the hosts. The hosts are the armies of heaven. And so here he is, the Lord of hosts, and, and we're, we're, we're seeing that God is the God, the Lord, the King of the whole earth. So God is King of the whole earth, the world. His salvation and judgment therefore extend to all nations. So, and then the other phrase, the whole earth is full of his glory. God is omnipresent in the whole universe. So here again, another attribute of God God is present everywhere. So coming, going on in Isaiah 6, 4, at the foundations of the threshold, and the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So we have, see other experiences of this in the Bible when, when creation, creation, all creation, worships God, even though even the inanimate objects will bow and worship God in this way. They will shake. The foundations shook. Um, the, um, the house was filled with smoke. Here again is reminiscent of the dedication of the tabernacle and the temple when God's glory filled them. And so this is, this is kind of looking at that, that point as well. So what did Isaiah do at this point? What is Isaiah's response? This is in the, second, the next point, looking inward. In Isaiah 6.5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. And as one of the translations, I, I think King James puts it, I am undone, which I, I kind of like that. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. See, Isaiah recognizes his sin, and he's terrified in the presence of the living God. And you know, Isaiah is not the only one in the Bible where he has an experience like that in the presence of God. If you look in in Exodus, when, when God was coming down on Mount Sinai, the people of Israel were in the camp, and what do they do? They hear the they hear the thundering and the lightning and the clouds and the loud trumpet blast, and all the people in the camp trembled. Trembled. Job, when after crying out to God with questions throughout the book of much of the book of Job, when God finally responds to him, what can he do? What can he say? What does Job say to God? I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. But I think one of the more interesting things is happens is in the New Testament. We think about these things about God, the Father, or the, or the God of the Old Testament, and we think somehow he's different than the God of the New Testament or Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 5, this account um, on one occasion, so this is Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. On one occasion, when the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked to be put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners and the other boat to come and help them. And they came and and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, he recognized that the divinity in Christ. He recognized his sinfulness, even in the in in the, his unworthiness to be in the presence of Jesus. Another account, which is which is even perhaps even more striking, is from Mark chapter four, in starting at verse thirty-five. Um, in another another account that you'll be familiar with, this one. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, "Let us go across to the other side." And leaving the crowd, he took them with them in the boat just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, even in this situation, the disciples react with fear to the divinity of Christ, to his power, power over even the the elements of nature. So coming back to Isaiah chapter 6, and then starting at verse 6, we look at, at... um, what the what the, the seraphim did to uh, to uh, to Isaiah? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, "Behold, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. So the burning coal from the altar, it really represents the Old Testament system of sacrifices where the, where the sacrifices on the altar were, were made to make atonement for the sins of the people. Um, so by taking the coal from the altar, it represented that atonement um, that his sins were atoned for. And then the fact that it touched his lips, he said, I am a man of unclean lips. And so by touching the point of his confessed sin, his confessed sin was his unclean lips. Touching the point of his lips really um, was, was why that it was done there. So, you know, and I think this, this is a, a, a good point to even consider our reaction to God. If, if, we, if, you, if there's somebody here who's never been saved, I mean, think about your reaction to God. You're in, you're in no better, no worse, or you're in a similar situation to what Isaiah was in. Your sin is on you, and your sin is unconfessed, or maybe confessed if you, he confessed his sin before God. But what is our hope? You know, if we have never been born again, we have to put our faith in Christ. That is our, he is the only one that can atone for our sin, okay? And, and here again, what it takes is that knowledge of what the gospel is, like we talked about earlier, that assent or agreement with the gospel, and then trust, trusting in Christ to be our salvation. So we will never be able to stand before um, unashamed in God's presence until we know Christ. And ultimately, when Christ comes again, our, our lives will be made perfect, and finally we'll be able to stand in Christ's presence. So, what is, looking outward, what is Isaiah's response to his cleansing? In Isaiah 8, 6, verse 8, And I heard the voices of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? So this is the Lord calling and commissioning Isaiah to be his prophet. Who will go for us? Here again, this is a, maybe a, a, an indication of the of the the Trinity. Um, uh, many commentators would say that that is similar to when God says in in uh, Genesis one twenty six, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness." Here again, referring to the Trinity. So, finally, when Isaiah hears this, "Who will go for us?" He replies at the end of verse eight. Then I said, here am I, send me. So he volunteers before he even knows what the Lord is asking, what the Lord wants him to do. So, you know, the Lord, in the next verse, we realize that God wants to send him to the people. He says, in, in, to, to, to go and say to this people, he's going to say, well, who are these people that God wants him to go and say to? There, there's some, in the first five chapters of Isaiah, he talks about, about the people of, is, of, of Judah there, and he says, um, God says, or Isaiah says, through you know, God speaking through Isaiah, "Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken." Children, I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Israel does not know; my people do not understand. He says that in Isaiah chapter one, verses two and three, and then in Isaiah one thirteen to fifteen, he says, "Bring me no more vain offerings." He doesn't accept their offerings because they are. Um, it says, incense is an abomination to me. Um, um, you have become a burden to me, he says, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, he says. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is God speaking of the, of the, of the, 
of the nation of, of Judah. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and call light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Um, and then he said, and so these are, the, these are the people. So these people have rejected God, even though they've been through this period of relative prosperity and peace. The people have had a good king, but they've not put their faith in God. They've rejected God. And so if we come back to Isaiah chapter 6, this is the commission that, I, that God gives to Isaiah. And he said, go and say to this people, this people we've just described, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. He tells them, make the heart of this people dull and make their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So, so God was using Isaiah to preach the word one more time, but knowing that the result was that it was going to not have the, uh, an effect of, of saving them, but of hardening their hearts. And so Isaiah had a very hard job. He was going to a people whose hearts were hard. They were set against the Lord. And yet God was calling him to be faithful and do a hard work. Do a work where he wasn't going to see many results, maybe any results. Isaiah's job was to preach where the result that the hearts would actually be hardened all the more. They're going to be more, because of the fact that he had preached the word to them, they were all the more responsible for their actions because they knew the truth. So sometimes God calls us to hard jobs, and God calls us to be faithful as well. So how do we respond to this text? There's a lot more there, but this is, this, you know, this is what we have time for this morning. So how do we respond to text? You know, I, I, there's, there's kind of a couple of conclusions that, that I really draw from this. One is that we must worship the holy, holy God, the completely holy God of the universe. Okay, We, we must worship God. And there, there are different ways that we can do that. One of the things that we need to make sure we don't neglect is personal worship. We need to be making sure that we set aside times for Bible reading, that we set aside times for prayer, we set aside times for meditation, that we don't neglect the reading of God's Word, and that we will feed ourselves the, the, the food of God's, of God's bread, of God's Word. Um, but the other aspect I think that is equally important, and it may be even not more important, is we cannot neglect our place in the body of Christ. God's church. One uh, a, a verse that, that I think of is in First uh, Corinthians chapter twelve, verse fourteen, and this is familiar. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, "Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body," that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, "Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body," that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The reality is, we can't survive outside of the body. I mean, if we're going to use the body as an analogy, we cut my hand off, 
What's going to happen to my hand? My hand's going to die. It cannot survive outside the body. If we take, if we take an, my eye out, what's going to happen to it? It's going to die. It cannot survive outside the body. And a further truth is, is not only is the hand going to die, but the body is hurt by the loss of the hand. The body is law, is hurt by the loss of the eye. So each member of the body, each member of the church is so important to the body of Christ. This is the body of Christ that God has placed right here in this place at this time. So Christianity is not a private religion. I think that's maybe one of the things I want to say. So I, I want to encourage you to have personal devotions and do things like and read your Bible and pray and, and, and meditate on God's Word. But that is not the end all of, of Christianity. If you're going to be a believer, you're expected to be a part of the body of Christ. So, so we, yes, we need a personal faith. Yes, we need a personal relationship with Christ. But we're called to community together, to worship together, to worship the holy God of the universe together through, through the church, through the body of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of, uh, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. So there's strength, there's hope, there is that exhortation for one another to, to, uh, to, hold, to hold our original confidence firm to the end. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, we read, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So let's work together to strive for the holiness of God as we study the holiness of God. See, you know, in Exodus 33, we read that Moses couldn't see the face of God. You know, God placed him in the cleft of the rock, covered him with his hand as he passed by, and then he was actually able to see the backside of God, but he never saw God's face. But see, Jesus has opened the way to the Father that we may see his face and live. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We have a confidence because Jesus lived the life that we lived. He's, he was tempted the ways we are tempted. And yet, he was without sin. So we can receive mercy and grace in the time of need. So there's a prayer that the Israelites used to pray. There was a benediction. It's very familiar. My dad, I remember I heard this every, this was the benediction at the end of every service when I was growing up. It was from Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
See, it was the prayer of every Israelite that they would get to see the God's face. And this was their prayer. Make your face shine upon, to make his face shine upon us and to be gracious to you and to lift his countenance upon us. See, we, we can't have that with sin in our lives. But with, the, with Jesus Christ, that is possible for us. From 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's our hope. Our hope is that when Jesus comes again, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we will be totally cleansed of all our sins, made perfect at the time Jesus comes, and be able to stand in the presence of God. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, Jesus Christ, because we shall see him as he is. That's our only blessed hope. I pray that if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you would do that, that God would open the eyes of your heart. He would open your ears and eyes to the truths of his gospel, that they would put new birth in your life, in your heart, and that you would be created anew to put faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the truths of your of your gospel that you would um, that you would show them to us that you would open our eyes and ears to this that you would just um, guide and direct us as a church that we would not be um, uh, afraid to be in community with one another that we would that we would uh, uh, account, uh, hold each other accountable that we would um, give you glory as a church father that we would not cut ourselves off from fellowship with one another that we would truly Um, be submissive to one another, and encourage and exhort one another, Father. And that we would not neglect our times of personal worship, and we would recognize our relationship that we need with your Son, Jesus Christ, Father. I pray that there's anyone here tonight, today, that needs to put their faith in Jesus, that you would draw them unto you, Father, that you would draw them unto Jesus, that they would see and love and cherish him. We just ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.